I really feel it in my heart, before I even begin this uh, message, to, to just say this word, following up what Lars said. Um, you know, Paul, he writes, I'm going to get these speakers out of the way so I don't knock them over. So I don't knock them over, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to knock it over. <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't want to step on it and break it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writes to the uh, Christians at Thessalonica, and he says, he addresses them as co-laborers in the work of the ministry. Co-laborers. I, what I feel impressed on my heart to say even before I begin preaching is, is this. Christianity is supposed to be labor. It, it's, it's a vocation. It's a job. It's discipleship, which means to be disciplined. The Lord fills our life, gives us joy, gives us peace, frees us from sin. But that's not just for us. It's to energize us and heal us, to put us back into the work of his kingdom. And the central agenda of our life in this interim period we call this present age is to be involved in ministry, kingdom work. I don't know what talents you have, I don't know what gifts you have, I don't know what calling you have, but one thing I do know, and I'm really impressed to say this this morning, to continually bring this up in front of us. Lars has already done it, but I feel called to reiterate it. We all are called to be co-laborers in the ministry of the kingdom through prayer through prayer. Whatever gifts you have or don't have doesn't matter. You're called to pray. We began this work as an experiment to see what would happen if, if, if we took God at his word that when people pray, God responds and he pours out his spirit and he does things, Jeremiah says, beyond our wildest imaginations. And this, this whole work has been based on prayer and, and what it is now and what it will be in the future is based on prayer and it is nothing without prayer. Without prayer, we are hung high and dry. And I want to just encourage you, I want to implore you, and my heart, I feel like begging you to be involved. If you have anything to do with this ministry, whether you feel called, uh, whether you're here for the first time or you've been here for a year, to commit daily to a time of prayer for us. I, at the beginning, threw out this figure of five minutes. So let's stick with it. Five minutes a day. What would happen if we had 500 people praying five minutes a day? I don't know, but it's half as much as what would happen if we had 1,000 people praying five minutes a day or 500 praying 10 minutes a day. Figure out the mathematics about it. But I encourage you to be involved in prayer. You know what the thing is? You get the kickback. As you pray for the ministry, the work of the ministry kicks back to you, and you begin to find a joy and a peace and an empowering that you wouldn't have known otherwise. The worst thing, the suicide of any kind of work of God, what is suicide for it is if it ever, ever begins to coast. And my job is to make sure that that never happens in my life or in the life of this church. I don't care. God has blessed us in an incredible way. And from this point on, that's totally irrelevant. I don't care what attendance we've had. I don't care what records have been broken. What's been done in the past is of no consequence because I know this. In my heart of hearts, I know this. It is nothing compared to what God can do in the future if we keep calling upon him, keep trusting in him and not in our own works, keep trusting in the power of prayer. I really, don't, I really believe we haven't even begun to see God move in the way he wants to move. Eyes haven't seen and the ears haven't heard the things which God has in store for those who trust in him. And I, I, I just want to encourage us to never coast on our laurels. But to all, We can always praise God more passionately. We can always preach more passionately. There's always more souls to be won. There's always more work to be done. There's always more kids to teach the gospel to. There's always more. And I hope we have an insatiable greed for Jesus Christ. 
a greed that is insatiable. We'll have a time of rest. That side of the kingdom. Right now, it's time to work. We're starting our, our, our series here. Oh, and all that is just to say this. I, I want to encourage you. This isn't just about tonight's prayer thing, but it includes that. Whether you can make it tonight or not, I encourage you to be involved in prayer for us. And I'm going to remind you of that until we're, till the cows come home, whatever that phrase means. Till the fat lady sings, I don't know. But tonight we're having this prayer meeting, and we're going to be doing this uh, once a month. We have two locations at the Lee's house and at the church office. And if you can possibly make it to one of those two, I encourage you to do so. You'll be investing in the work of the kingdom, but you're the one who's going to get blessed. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to, to the Gospel of Luke. We're beginning a series, Peace in the Age of Rage. Peace in the Age of Rage. And I would like to read from Luke chapter 2. Part of this is found... I'm going to read three verses that, on, on the surface, don't look like they have anything in common. But I think they have a lot in common. Luke chapter 2, verse 13. Sung over the baby Jesus, who was a newborn infant in the manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with an angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men, on whom his favor rests. On earth peace, peace, on whom his favor rests. Let me read another passage. Matthew chapter 2. Verse, seven, or verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah. Weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refused, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. One final verse. Jesus comes to bring peace. A bunch of kids in Bethlehem get killed. And now Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And verse 20, but our citizenship, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we are aware that this ministry is nothing without your spirit, and our words are nothing without your spirit, and our singing is nothing without your spirit, and we confess our impotency and inability to do kingdom work without your spirit. And in doing that, Lord, we invite your spirit here to be a part of this, Lord. God, we need you to constantly be confronting us. There's a pull of the world on us to bring us down, to cause us to be lackadaisical and settle for the status quo, Lord, and we get entirely too comfortable in this world. I pray, God, that you'd use this message to make us uncomfortable. Make us uncomfortable. In your name we pray. Amen. I think it's one of the great ironies of the... Uh, Gospel, especially of the, of the Christmas narratives about the birth of Jesus. One of the great ironies is this. 
the Savior who, was, who came into this world to bring peace. And he's called in Isaiah 9, the Prince of Peace. And he's the one over whom the angels sang their glorious song, Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Man. That when he came into the world, his birth resulted in the slaughter of hundreds of little boys. You know the story, Herod heard that there was a king that was born. The Magi had told him that. And he wanted to find this little boy, and, and uh, uh, he tried to trick the, the, the Magi into telling them where he was, but it didn't work. And so enraged, at some point he sent out all of his soldiers, and this wasn't even that extraordinary a thing for a, for a governor to do back in those days. They, they, were, they weren't accountable to anyone. They could do whatever they wanted. But he ordered all the, the boys, two years old and under, to be killed because he wanted to make sure that he got this future king. So the birth of the Prince of Peace results in the slaughter of hundreds of, of, of little boys. And it's not really comforting to their mothers. And that fulfills this prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. Rachel weeping for her children and could not be comforted. It's kind of ironic that the one who, who was born to bring peace ended up, his birth resulted in the slaughtering of a bunch of children. And he himself died a violent, horrible death on a cross at the hands of raging people, as, as, as Acts chapter 4 tells us, the rage of this world crucified Jesus. The rage of this world, when Jesus was born, resulted in the death of these innocent little babies. And that is tragically ironic. But we don't talk much about that kind of stuff at Christmas time. Come, children, let's talk about the slaughtering of the hundreds of kids when Jesus was born. That's, that's not part of the Christmas scenario. And for good reason. I mean, it'd be kind of a killjoy, I would suspect. We like Christmas to be the time where, where you know, we get very peaceful, we, we concentrate on peace, we, we, uh, we sing a lot of nice Christmas carols, uh, joy to the world, silver bells, peace on earth, goodwill to man, all these kind of things. We like to think about children singing, everything's very serene, everything's very nice, we don't like, don't like to think about problems, we have nice manger scenes with nice clean hay and nice, you know, angelic donkeys and the wise men and then the shepherds and the star and Mary and, and all those nice kind of things. And everyone gets a little bit sentimental. And everyone even gets a little bit religious. You know, church attendance about doubles on, on Christmas morning in America. Usually there's about 39 to 40% of Americans go to church on any given Sunday. Christmas morning, it's time to be religious. Because this is a time where, well, hey, everyone's a little bit sentimental. And I'm all for that. I don't want to come across as some kind of Scrooge and say I don't like Christmas carols. I love Christmas carols. I love Christmas. Went to a Christmas program last night. Got very touched. I enjoy all of that. But there's something that really concerns me about this, and that is this. All of this flowery, nice stuff, especially when it gets wrapped up with American commercialism, and it gets wrapped up with Santa Claus, and it gets wrapped up with Rudolph, and it gets wrapped up with all the other things that we call the holiday season. It gives the Christmas message a, a feeling of artificiality to it, doesn't it? Because the real world has rough edges, but this story doesn't. It's too cute to be true, too nice, too quaint, too pretty to be real. It's the kind of thing you would give one Sunday a year to, but nothing more. And so Christianity is painted kind of as this artificial thing that doesn't have a total demand on our life. It's, it's worth us an occasional Sunday morning. It's there to help our world be a nice little better place to, to sort of reinforce Minnesota nice and make us sort of quaint and everything's kind of wonderful. Christmas is there to help make the world a prettier place. And if there's anything Christianity is not, it's not that. 
I wonder if we can read the gospel story without all the cultural fluff that's come around it. Because if you read it in its original context, there's a horrifying aspect to it. It wasn't meant to make us more comfortable with the world. I really don't believe that. The gospel, if it's about anything, is about reality. It's about a real God who became a real baby. Born into a real sinful world to save real sinners from the real damnation and bring them to a real heaven. It's about reality. It's about Jesus Christ coming into a real manger with real manure, real smell, real cold, real terror. Where there's real babies that are slaughtered and he's going to die a real horrifying death. It's about reality. And therefore it's got rough edges to it. The world that Jesus was born into wasn't a nice, quaint, sweet, pretty, children-singing kind of a world. It was a jungle. And I really don't believe we understand the point of the Christmas story or anything of the gospel unless we paint it against that backdrop, the backdrop of the, uh, of the gospel. The horror of the world, the sin of the world, the slaughtering of children, the baby Jesus has meaning against that. But you take it out of that context and it loses all of its significance. The question is, what does peace on earth mean in an age of rage? As was Jesus' time, as is our times. What does Christianity have to do with the real world? This is the real world here. Model family is shattered by slangs. The world's a jungle. whole family gets offed by a ticked-off 14-year-old. More people killed in the West Bank. The peace uh, agree agreement isn't working. Violence takes toll in the Middle East. People are becoming discouraged about that. Young Egyptian girl killed by, by guerrilla warfare. Here's a guy, this is the real world. Welcome to the real world. Welcome to the jungle. Uh, this, this guy has uh, sexually abused 16 people, or four, 14 young men. He's getting 16 months in jail. Here's, here's, here's the real world. Teachers expressing how things have changed. When they started teaching, their biggest concern was chewing gum in school. Now over half of them are aware of, of, of weapons being brought to school. The question is, what does peace on earth mean in the real world? And if Christianity is about anything, if Christmas is about anything, it's not about denying the reality of the harsh world we live in. It's about looking at, looking at it right in the face, staring at it right in the face, and asking the question, what does the baby Jesus have to say about this? What is the intersection of the gospel message with the rage and the blood and the warfare, the war zone that this jungle we call earth is really about? I'm going to show you a video that I put together. Paul's already put a disclaimer on it. I, I put this together with the understanding that the children would be out of here. Uh, all of the scenes on this, uh, on this video are taken from primetime TV, and it's sort of ironic that I have to make a disclaimer about what goes on in primetime TV. They're mostly news reels, reels. There's a couple of commercials that I tape for, uh, for different shows that are around. And I put it together with some music that's purposely offensive because I think it expresses. I want us to, to really get a grip on what reality is in terms of being an age of rage. It's an amateur video, so don't have too high expectations, but the music put to it is, is Guns and Roses. Paul said, I think we, we probably set a record here. I doubt if, if Alex Rose has ever sung in church before, but <laughs> leave it to Woodland Hills to let this be the case. I entitle this Welcome to the Jungle, because if, if on Christmas we welcome Jesus to the earth and into our hearts, what we're doing is we're welcoming him into the jungle. Watch this video. I hope it makes you uncomfortable and even maybe a little angry. Welcome to the jungle. Can we cut off all the lights? I warned you. <laughs> what does that make you feel like when you watch that?
makes me feel, on the one hand, very angry. That whole scene in L.A. made me very angry. I was angry when I saw the Rodney King beating. I was a little angry when I heard the verdict trial. But I was even angry when I saw the city burn because of the verdict trial. I was angry when I saw the scenes with William Denning, the man in the truck, getting brutally beaten. And I was angry when I heard the verdict over him, too. These guys all got off on misdemeanor charges. There's a lot of anger I feel, and I suppose a lot of anger you feel, and then we become part of the problem. We become part of the rage. We'll talk more about how to handle that next week. But there's also a feeling that I have about this when I, when I see something like this, a feeling of hopelessness. A, a feeling of hopelessness. Because the issues about the racial conflict and the issues of gender conflict and the issues of social class conflict and economic conflict and multicultural conflict, they're so deep and they're so profound that how does one begin to even ever resolve them? But what I feel most profoundly, and this is the only point I want to make this morning, is this. When I see something like that, and when I read, when I read uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, newspaper headings that I, I clipped out, this is, this is four days' worth of news that I read earlier. When, when, I, when, when I see that kind of stuff, it makes me want to go home. I don't know about you, but I, it makes me want to get out of here. And in a way, seeing that as hopeless is good for the believer to do. Because I don't believe that our hope was ever supposed to be put on our ability to work out our jungle problems, our ability to resolve our jungle conflicts, our ability to make peace in the jungle or make the jungle a little better place. I don't think that our ultimate hope is ever supposed to be on those kind of things. Our ultimate hope is the one that Paul talks about in Philippians 3. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, who came one time when the Bible says he's coming again. And when I watch a film like that, and when I read the newspaper, and I see the stuff going on around me, I remind myself of this, and this is what I want to remind you of here this morning. If you're a believer, you're not a citizen of this world. And so it's very appropriate that you'd feel a little bit out of place seeing something like this. Paul says that our citizenship isn't in this world don't get too comfortable in this culture. Don't, don't set up your tent and, and, and put your roots too deeply here and don't get too settled. Don't get too lackadaisical. Don't get too blended in with the status quo because you're just passing through. You're a stranger in this land. You don't, you don't belong in this, this land. You march to a different drummer. You hear a different music. You have a different commander. And so... In this war zone, it's natural for us, it's necessary for us to realize that we're not a part of this world. We weren't made for the jungle, we weren't saved for the jungle. This is a veritable war zone. And our ultimate hope isn't how good we can clean up this war zone. Our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is coming back for us. There are those who think that the, that, that, you know, the problem here with the violence in our, in our culture is simply an economic problem. It's just economics, you see. So we have, you have an economic solution. We can take care of all of that. If you just bridge the gulf between the haves and the haves not and, and give equal distribution to everybody and, and have economic fairness, then that will take care of the problem. And there's a little bit of truth in that, I suppose, but the, but the problem here is far, far deeper than economics, friends. Marx had that solution, and he created the most totalitarian, dictator, violent government the world's ever seen. Some say maybe it's education. Education's the problem. If, if we just had enough if everyone was educated enough and we had it available to enough people, that that would solve the problem. But there's a little bit of truth in that, but ultimately there's, it's never been shown that the more educated a person is, the more godly they are, the more peaceful they are. Nazi Germany was run by a bunch of elitist intellectuals. Some of the most violent people in, in history are, 
the most educated people. Our culture is the most, the 20th century has been the most educated century in, in history in our culture, but it's been the most violent one. Everything that our little minds have ever thought of in terms of our ingenuity has been used in some way or other towards destruction. And then there are others who say, well, we just have to sort of evolve. You know, so it's kind of a new age thing. We're all inherently good, you see, but we just have a little baggage from our monkey stage. And, and we've got to evolve and get out of our territorialism. We've, we've got to learn to adapt to our new world situation. But we'll evolve. We'll get more loving. We'll get more just. We'll get more kind. Eventually, it's going to happen. Where is there one shred of evidence that we are any more peace-loving than they were back in Jesus' time? One shred of evidence! Do you know that, do you know that in the last, since 1960, violent crime has risen 500% in America? In the last five years, murders have risen 23%. And among teenagers, they've risen 84%. Are we getting better? Are we getting more enlightened? Are we getting more evolved? I don't see it. For that reason, I don't have a lot of hope. I don't put my trust. And I don't think any of us can put our trust in, in, in a, this program or that program or this idea or that idea because the Bible says that the root of the problem is the human heart. The root of the problem is the human heart. When I watch a film like that, you know what it does? It proves to me that the Bible is true. Because the Bible says this world is a war zone. Don't expect it to be anything different. The Bible says that we are at war with God. We declared war with God. We're in a fallen state. We're not where we're supposed to be. Things are radically out of control. Things are radically degraded. These things are not what God called them to be, not what God created them to be. And it is a war zone. Not only among people who are fallen, filled with violence, whose hearts are desperately wicked, but the Bible says that there are spiritual powers engaged in this world. Satan is called the, the prince of darkness, the principality and power of this age. 1 John 5 tells us that he is the dominant influence in this world. There's, there are raging spirits that plague us. And this, this world is a war zone. It is a war zone. We are involved in cosmic battle. So it shouldn't surprise us when we see this kind of stuff going on. What do you expect in the jungle? What does peace on earth mean in the light of all that? It means a number of different things. We'll talk about them in the next four weeks. I'm not saying give up on the, on the world and, and just not be concerned about that. But our ultimate hope, our, our, our final hope, what can give peace in our life is this. That when Jesus was born, he was born to create a people who don't belong to the jungle. He didn't come to make the jungle a better place, to pick a couple of weeds and to tear down some shrubs and to get rid of a couple of lions. He didn't come to do that, which is why the world isn't particularly better off since he's come. It's gotten worse, if anything. He didn't come to reform the jungle, what he came to do. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom I'm talking about and the people I'm talking about aren't of this world. They're not of this jungle. He's come to create a people in the midst of the jungle to do warfare in the jungle, but ultimately the final hope is that he's going to come back and take those people out of the jungle. To understand the meaning of Jesus' first coming, we have to look to the second coming, which is our final hope. We don't belong to this world, but Jesus, when he came down, he came for a bride, and he's going to come back for a bride. He came to create a people he could call his own, and the Bible says he's not going to leave us down here in this jungle forever. He's going to take those people back to himself. His own body, redeemed, made spotless, made pure by the blood that he shed for us on Calvary. And that is ultimately our final hope. He started his work and his first coming. That's what Christmas is about. But the work will only be completed with the second coming. Amen? He came as a baby the first time. But he's coming as a king the second time. He came as one who was himself a victim of the violent jungle the first time. 
But when he comes the second time, he's going to set himself up as the Lord of this jungle. And there'll be peace on earth. There will be peace on earth. God's word doesn't lie. There will finally be a time of justice. There will finally be a time when the Lord will reign, but it will come when he comes back for his people. And not until, not until that time. So we with the early Christians should pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we don't belong in this world, not with all of its rage, not with all of its violence. He came, the, he came the first time and a handful of people worshipped him, but the Bible says when he comes the second time, when he sets up his kingdom, every knee shall bow, praise God, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He came incognito the first time, this God in flesh in a little baby manger. But when he comes again, he'll come with his full radiance and every eye shall behold him. He'll come with his glory. He'll come manifesting his power. He'll take his people back with him and the Bible says he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. When we celebrate Christmas in the jungle, we're looking back at, what, at, at his first coming and the love he showed there, but we're also looking forward to a time where we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come, thou fairest Lord Jesus. Come and set thy captive free. Emmanuel, hope of Israel, redeemer of the nations. Let me just conclude by saying this. Number one, put your hope in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer here, your hope's in Jesus Christ. I'm all for programs that will minimize the damage of the jungle, but I don't think the jungle is ever going to stop being a jungle until the Lord comes back. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I've got to tell you out of love, you don't have any hope. You don't have any hope. But you can have hope if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When I dismiss, come forward here, will you please? And there'll be someone who will, who will pray with you to invite Jesus Christ in, in your heart so you'll be ready when he comes back. Secondly, wake up to the warfare around us. Realize that in this time, we're not just supposed to be waiting, twiddling our fingers. We're supposed to be involved in jungle warfare. That's what we're called to do. And Christianity is anything but a spectator sport. We're to be participants in the warfare, even as we look forward to the coming of our king. Let's stand and close. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you are making us uncomfortable in this world. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, even right now this morning, you are weaning us from our comfortable addiction to the things around us. Lord, I pray that you are confronting our, our gut-level motivations, which try to, under the deception of the enemy in this culture, try to get us to live as though this world was what it was all about. As though we should just be as comfortable and as happy and as cute and serene and as trouble-free in this world as we could possibly be. That is the American way, Lord, but it's not your way. It's, it's the deception of the jungle, Lord. Free us from that. Free us from that, Lord God. It is what causes us such pain and misery and causes us to be ineffective for the kingdom. Use the baby Jesus to wean us from this world. If any man love the world... The love of the Father is not in him. Love not the world, neither the things of the world. Set your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.